Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast in the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. We've got a great guest today, Mark Patrikoff, a media investment banker from Houlihan Loki. He's been in the news quite a bit lately because he's the man selling Gawker out of bankruptcy. And he joins us on the phone from the Hamptons. Mark, welcome to Deal of the Week. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so let's start with Gawker, and then we can uh, expand out a little bit. Mark has a very interesting life, and we'll get into that. Uh, in just a few minutes. But Gawker has been the thing on a lot of people's minds recently that sort of follow the world of media investment banking. We know final bids on Gawker are due August 15th, uh, and there's somewhere between 12 and 24 interested parties. Uh, and we also have a stocking horse or an introductory bid by Ziff Davis at about $100 million or so. Uh, what else do we know at this point? Well, look, you know, the, even the 12 to 24 number is uh, indicative of the amount of interest that we've had in the business, you're not going to see that many parties show up um, on Tuesday. The auction, actually, just to be clear, bids are due at 5 o'clock on Monday. We spend the next five or six hours qualifying the bids, and I'll explain that in a second. And then uh, Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., the qualified bidders show up in an auction room at our law firm, and the auction begins. So it, it'll, be a, it'll be a fraction of that total number. Could be three, four, five parties. Might not be any, uh, but right now we have a good sense of at least the core set of um, seriously interested parties. But a lot will happen between now and, and Monday night. And back to what I said before, just to be clear, bids aren't just one number. So there are a handful of contracts that will have to be assigned or not assigned. So each bid is pretty complicated. So one buyer may be willing to take the lease. Another buyer may not be willing to take the lease. There are a whole series of contracts. So you have to kind of value each bid on, a, on an individual basis. So there's a lot of work that will go on from 5 p.m. Monday until the auction starts at 10 a.m. Tuesday, just so we know exactly what we have. And again, if it's more than one, we've got an auction. So that's what we're hoping for. And so who makes this decision? Is this sort of you solo, or, or do you have some help? Is, is the Gawker you know, founder, Nick Denton, involved at all in this? Well, first of all, Nick's involved in everything we're doing right now. But when you say the decision, at the end of the day, the buyers will make the decision. Whoever bids the most, we'll get the we'll get So the sim- simple finances. Whoever bids the most wins yeah, here. It's, it, it's a, in a way, and I, I honestly, I've never done this before, so I've you know, I've been involved in almost 100 M&A transactions in my career, but never um, one that was in, in, in the midst of a bankruptcy proceeding. And so I'm learning also as we go. But for me, it was, you know, business as usual in terms of telling the story of the company to the right people and making sure that they understood, you know, where the value is and leading, you know, that process to hopefully, a, a, you know, the highest possible number. But it's interesting because are there certain rules where, so, you know, in, in certain situations, uh, and certainly you know this, you know, better than I do, other things come into the picture beyond price. You know, maybe it's culture or fit. Uh, are those factors here or is this purely the numbers? You know, they are only in, in a very um, intangible sense. I mean, clearly we've thought a lot about culture, a lot about fit. It's a people business. You know, you can't have a party by the company and have 85% of the staff walk out the next day. Right. So culture does matter, and it certainly matters to Nick and the, and the leadership team. And the smartest buyers are the ones who are making sure that this is a match for them as well. On the other hand, it is a bottom-line auction process. So you are right that in an open environment, out of bankruptcy, we don't always take the highest bid. I've seen many deals where you're taking a bid that's 
you know, five percent, eight percent lower than than the high bid, just because it's a better fit for management and leadership. And and that, and and you know, I always appreciate that. I mean, it it, uh, it it is a life decision for the people who are involved here. Unfortunately, in this case, when when you're at the mercy of a bankruptcy proceeding, ultimately they don't have a big say. Ultimately, you helped decide and orchestrate the stocking horse bid here for Ziff Davis. I'm curious if you have a take on, does it make sense for Gawker to sit within a larger media company, or maybe does a smaller company such as Ziff Davis that can spend more energy on Gawker, maybe it's sort of a, uh, a more core fit to what the company does, does that make sense? Or in the end, is it just sort of a case-by-case basis? I think it's, I think it's more the latter, but, but I will tell you that in our first conversation, when Nick and I first sat down, before the company had filed for bankruptcy, before we knew how this was going to play out, first time we met, I said, you know, the buyer here should be Ziff Davis, mainly because I think it's it's a good cultural fit. It's a good strategic fit. I happen to know what Ziff is looking for. And it goes down to who's going to need the business the most. So in some cases, you might say a larger company has a big hole to fill. That might be a good reason to buy it. In other cases, one plus one equals four or five, which is what I think the case is here with Ziff. And, uh, you know, it made sense. They were very aggressive, um, very direct. They communicated effectively with Nick and Heather and the rest of the team. And I think it was, a, it was overall it was a really good connection they made. And I think that's why we're going to see this play out well, whether it's with them or somebody else. Um, but, you know, I'd be happy to see it end in Ziff's hands. I think they've earned it to some extent. Right. So just to be clear for everyone listening, even though Ziff made the introductory bid, that doesn't mean that they are capped at that bid. They no, are a- no. In fact, most likely and hopefully uh, the number is going to go up. As you look at the digital media landscape, we saw Axel Springer buy Business Insider for about $450 million. But we haven't seen too many other full-scale acquisitions of digital media properties. Is that because the decision makers at these sites feel like they are grossly undervalued and want to wait years down the road for billion-dollar payouts? Or is it because they're actually overvalued at this point and the business model is still relatively questionable? Well, the uh, banker side of me loves seeing deals like that when they happen. I, I think um, it's more, though, what you said about businesses being probably overvalued. I mean, look, a- Axel knew what they were doing. They had a reason to do it. They took a stake in the business, I think, six or seven months before they acquired it. It was a strategic plan they had to get into the U.S. with partners they liked and knew, and, 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 and they could afford it. And it was, it was an overall, you know, I, I think it, it, it made sense for them. Some of these companies, are, the valuations are so bloated, there just, just aren't enough buyers out there who have to have something, so they don't trade. And they're not going public, not the traditional media platforms at least i don't i don't see that anytime soon so you've got a you've got a real challenge how do you extract value if you put you know a ton of money into a business that has now a valuation you know floating around a billion dollars with no obvious path to being public and no obvious m&a path i'm not sure you know what you're going to do to you know to return value to your shareholders I want to get into your life a little bit, but one more question about uh, something that I know uh, you have some own uh, personal familiarity with uh, as an advisor to FanDuel. We did get a a ruling uh, in the past few days uh, that uh, daily fantasy sports will become re-legalized in New York. Do you feel like this could be a catalyst for FanDuel and DraftKings to come together on a merger? Look, if anything, that ruling, which was 
appropriate and overdue empowers both companies to continue as they are. So it's fun to speculate. Obviously, I only know one of the two companies. I know it. I know, I know Fandle very well. Uh, I'm excited by how well they're doing. I think management is locked into a great strategic plan. Obviously, you know we brought in KKR and Google and NBC and the NBA. They've got great investors. Shamrock. I, you know, I, I think options are what you want as a CEO and as a you know fund that's put a lot of money to work uh, in a platform you believe in. So there, there are all kinds of things that could happen. I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid it. I'm just saying the ruling is, is a good thing for the business to, to continue with, you know, its current strategy and choose what it choose, you know, what it would like to see happen. It's very similar to some of the work I've done with the CEO of Airbnb and thinking through how do you, you know, create a better relationship with, with city and, and federal government just because it empowers the company to do more and, and achieve more and, and um, grow its business. So uh, options are important. And I think some of these, you know, old fashioned, you know, poor, I think at least, you know, backwards thinking, you know, um, government officials need to understand that, that these tech companies have to have a different set of rules, and a new set of rules. They need rules, but they've got to be more appropriate for the current day and age. So I think the FanDuel ruling was, was a step in the right direction. So you heard Mark just mention that briefly, that he also advises Brian Chesky, the Airbnb CEO. Let's just take a step back and talk about how you got into sort of this this business of uh, advising. Your father is Alan Patrikoff, who's one of the most well-known venture capitalists in the world, probably. He founded Apex Partners, which has morphed into one of the biggest private equity funds. He later went on to co-found Graycroft, which focuses on early-stage VC investments. They invested in America Online and Apple Computer you know, years and years ago. Uh, he was also a founder and chairman of the board of New York Magazine. So on paper, it seems obvious why you may have been interested in this world. Am I drawing the right conclusion there that, that some of this interest comes from your father? Yeah, I think everything that we do as individuals, if we have nice parents who took an interest in our lives, is a reflection on some of the things that they do. But I graduated from college and went into the film business. That's right, at CAA first, right? Yeah. Well, no, I actually went to California to go to film school at USC for my MFA, and just in, 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 as a way of paying the bills at the time, uh, long before anybody knew Apex or anything else, you know, just a son of a businessman in New York, went to California to go to graduate school, needed to pay my rent, and got a job in the mailroom at CA. I, I sat down with Mike Ovitz in a conference room for a five-minute interview. I didn't know who he was. Um, I had met a guy who worked there who was also a USC student, and he said, you got to come in and, and meet this company, and took the job, and you know, found it fascinating. I really, you know, liked the deal-making side of the industry. I also had absolutely no talent in, in when it came to movie-making. So I, and I, luckily I learned that soon enough. Just a lot of filmmakers spend, you know, 20 years until they realize they just have no talent. I learned it very quickly. <laughs> and then I spent, you know, six of my, you know, my key years in my career, my formative years working inside a talent agency, not as an agent. I worked in kind of a corporate group doing all kinds of things evaluating projects and evaluating different types of new endeavors, new technology opportunities the company was you know, pursuing and just learned a ton and built up a really good Rolodex, understood how to you know, negotiate and sort of navigate the media landscape. So how did you get from there to starting your own investment bank, Mesa Global? It's a uh, interesting, I guess, at least interesting to me, hopefully to my, to my wife and kids, maybe someone else listening. I uh, left CA when Mike Ovitz went to Disney. I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I, Mike Ovitz, the co-founder of CAA. Yep. Yeah. I came back to New York. I'd actually helped um, raise some money for a 
CD-ROM company called Voyager, not as a banker, just as an advisor, and kind of in quotes. And CD-ROMs at the time were sort of the new thing, and this great combination of audio and video and text. I remember them, certainly. Storytelling, you know, in yeah. this sort of new technology platform was really appealing. Ended up taking a job running the business side of Voyager, cutting rights deals. So I did a deal with Major League Baseball, a deal with Stephen Sondheim, and we had a deal with the American Museum of Natural History to create these new CD-ROM projects. And you learn pretty quickly that um, the CD-ROM business was, was going to be a failure, kind of like Betamax leading to VHS. But this idea of multimedia was going to be a great platform for content. So I left about 10 months into my time and started a company with a kid. We were both kids, uh, a guy named Trevor Kaufman. He was the um, MIS person at Voyager. He did the computer um, work. He did HTML. He built their first website, which actually was an e-commerce site, one of the first e-commerce sites that we sort of built the business plan for. Anyway, we left and we started a company called KPE. It stood for Kaufman Patrickoff. What year was that, Mark? Uh, 96. Okay. And the idea was to build an incubator focused solely on the media companies. We would take my contacts and relationships in Hollywood and Trevor's technology skills and partner with CBS's and Turner's and Hearst's and uh, Disney's of the world to create digital content. And over those first two years... We did a handful of projects that were, you know, people say now ahead of their time, but you know, at that time they were just you know, interesting ideas that failed. So we did something called the Screening Room, where we got Leonardo DiCaprio and Cameron Diaz and Claire Danes each to do 30 minutes of programming a week, and we then made a distribution deal with AOL and brought in sponsors like Snapple, and the whole thing went nowhere. But it was a kind of cool idea. It just wasn't easy at the time to, first of all, to fund those projects fully and, and to generate enough revenue. So we started doing website work for hire with the same entertainment clients just to pay the bills. And we ended up splitting the company in half. Trevor went out and built an, a, an ad agency. I, st- I stuck with the kind of digital studio approach and ultimately built it into about a 320, 30-person company, New York, LA, and London-based, doing really big projects for all the major media companies. And then the market, you know, kind of the bubble burst, the market crashed, and then 9-11, and we had to downsize the business. And I just didn't have a clue how to do that. Because when you're building, you just grow and grow and grow and try everything and hire everybody. And when it comes to t- down to trying to maintain your business in, in during tough times, it was very difficult. So I took it apart. I learned much more downsizing the business than I did growing it. But um, it was a, ultimately a, you know, a very painful experience. I sold what was left of it in 2002. And, um, you know, heartbreaking. I had to sort of dust myself off and get back to work. I did a couple different things, um, advised Coca-Cola on something. I had known Coke from my um, CA days when CA had done a lot of work for Coca-Cola, those polar bear ads and so forth. Yeah, definitely. And then in, my, in 2006, I partnered with GTCR, which is a big fund in Chicago, and tried to buy um, a talent agency with the idea of stapling onto it an investment bank and a fund. So we went hard after ICM, which was for sale at the time. Allen & Company was selling it. And we put in a bid, and the idea was to staple on a bank that we had identified, and GTCR then was going to put up a quarter-billion-dollar fund, and it was going to be sort of the IMG of entertainment content. So the ability to package, in a sense, um, entertainment projects with both capital, talent, and, and, and then 
the deal skills required to create distribution and so forth. We were ultimately outbid for ICM. There was no other agency to buy, so um, the deal sort of fell apart. Kind of strike from you know strike two for me career-wise, uh, also heartbreaking. And I decided just to go ahead and start Boutique Bank. Initially, I didn't want to call the bank. I didn't want to call myself a banker. It was going to be an entertainment finance company, whatever that means. And I realized pretty quickly that if you're going to sell a service to somebody, you know, they better know what they're buying or they're going to go to someone else for it. So I morphed it into a bank. I had two great partners, and we um, built Mesa. It stood for Media Entertainment Strategy Advisors. It was in late 2007. And over the you know eight years before we sold it, we closed, I think, about 90-something deals, 95 deals. And, you no, know, there were plenty in there that we wouldn't bother talking about, but we got lucky pretty early on. I advised um, Colony Capital um, and Ron Tudor when they bought Miramax, and that led to deals with Relativity and IMAX and a bunch of other um, film finance work, and that led to some television production work and we always had great expertise in digital music and did probably five or six of the biggest deals in digital music and live entertainment. And, uh, you know, kind of off we went. We built it into a nice firm. It was never large. It was about 20, I think 24 people at its max. No intention of selling it. We had a fund, so we did some principal investing. And we're kind of an irritant in the side of everybody from Allen & Company to Goldman Sachs to Jeffries, et cetera, because we were so deep and so narrow that when um, any company that was using intellectual property as a driver of value was looking for an advisor, we typically had more domain expertise than any of the bigger banks. And is that why Houlihan Loki came came for you? Well, I think they came for us for yes. I mean, yes. I mean, they were going public and they didn't have a TMT team. So this was a pretty nice plug and play traditional and digital entertainment practice that you could buy. But we had multiple other parties calling us within. Kind of a month, it just all started, you know, all kind of happened for us in a very nice, organic way. One party called, another called, and before you knew it, you had you had a nice bidding process. And there was really a price to me that was, you know, that made it worth selling. Um, and if no party was going to reach that price, I was very happy not to sell. And Hulan kept resubmitting, and ultimately they, you know, they hit the bid. And what was the price? <laughs> Never going to share that. <laughs> Wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. All right. Well, they not what it was worth, but, it was, a, but it was a fair deal. And look, I, you know, someone said, "Why did you choose Hulan?" You know, there were two reasons. One is the obvious reason; they paid the most. I mean, it would be silly not to say that because it's the truth. But but it was also because I believed what they told me in terms of the company having a lot of open space. And it's very hard to take an entrepreneur, a career entrepreneur. I mean, worked for myself for 17 years since I left CA to plug them into a very corporate rigid environment. And they promised me there would be open space and at least enough of an entrepreneurial spirit where I would feel liberated to continue to push the envelope in terms of the types of deals I wanted to work on and the way I did you know, my banking work and some of the risk-taking I like in, in, in deal-making and, and building a business. And I believe them, and they've followed through on that um, in the year I've, I've been part of Hulahan. One of the companies you've advised in the past is Viacom. Uh, and I'm curious to ask you, you know, Philippe Delman has said many times over the past several months he wants to sell a minority stake in Paramount. But Sumner Redstone, the controlling shareholder in the company through National Amusements, his company, is against it. And there has been a lot of drama about what is going to happen here. How do you think this all plays out? First of all, I don't know. <laughs> That's the honest answer. Look, I've, I've advised Viacom on a few different deals, know them pretty well. I have a good friend who was very senior there for many, many years, 
um, who told me about five years ago, one of the reasons he left, and he left by choice, he's a well-known person in the industry, was because there was no real plan in place for what would happen after Sumner Redstone died. And I think this is a byproduct of that. It's just, it's just an unhealthy decision-making process within the, within the you know, four walls of ICOM. And, I, you know, how do you predict? It, you know, it's like having, trying to have a, a rational conversation with an irrational person just doesn't work. There's no, you know, if you were to say what would be the rational outcome here, um, there are probably three or four ways you could look at it, and they'd all make sense. I, I just don't know. Um, look, Paramount, if it's worth $10 billion and they can sell a nice piece of that, great. If it's, you know, if, if it gets valued at a third of that or, you know, 40% of that, it's less appealing. So it depends on, on how well I think the outside world values it. And Wanda, obviously, is in the news for looking at Paramount, they're, you know, but they're in the news for looking at everything. So <laughs> how uh, how they would, you know, take this and use it to build their business, who knows? I, you know, it, but it's something's going to happen, obviously. You know, Wanda's interesting, though, whether it's Paramount or, you know, if I were Wanda, I'd go try to buy MGM or at least buy James Bond out of MGM. I mean, there's some interesting assets out there that have been underexploited. I, I always have wondered why someone doesn't take a hard swing at James Bond, some international player. Um, of all it. the great property brands in the world, if you look what Disney was able to do with Marvel and, you know, Star Wars, I mean, Disney's been genius at that. Why doesn't someone look at James Bond the same way and uh, value it that way? Would seem to make a lot of sense, agreed. And MGM sort of floats out there as one of these, uh, you know, John Malone calls them the free radicals, uh, which would be an obvious company to be acquired. Or yeah. as you Although said, the people running it are very happy with it the way it is. So That's true, which is the reason it hasn't been sold exactly. already. Exactly. One other media deal I want to ask you about, because it was announced last week, uh, t- Time Warner took a 10% stake in Hulu. Stake valued Hulu at $5.8 billion. Hulu's now ending its free service and is only going to be a charged subscription service similar to Netflix. What are your thoughts on how Hulu represents the future of media? No, it's interesting. You know, Hulu has been sort of the stepchild of the industry to some extent. The, consume, you know, the user experience ultimately will be better. and It'll pay for it, but it'll be a better experience. You know, the choppiness of watching Hulu content with constant ads and so forth. Although they did a good job, I think, in understanding how to integrate advertising. I think they were ahead of the curve in that regard. But, you know, the, the, the entire space ultimately is going to come down to, I think, it's funny, I, I, the, the, the quick aside, I was having dinner once with the um, head of a network, and he was saying to me, you know, networks are dead, we're, you know, our brand is irrelevant. He, he was just depressed. He was kind of crying in his soup. This was maybe seven years ago. And I did say, and, and stand by this, that I feel exactly the opposite. That that the more content there is, the more the the more clutter there is, the more important brands are. So those brands start to define themselves as standing for something. I mean, when I was growing up, you knew what ABC was versus NBC and CBS, and then Fox came along. You kind of knew what Fox was, and The Simpsons sort of represented Fox initially, and that demographic and that 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 sort of creative aesthetic and point of view. So I think Hulu and Netflix, Amazon. There's room for all of them. They're going to start broadcasting live. They're going to start um, paying up for sports rights. I mean, so Twitter did with the NFL game. So I think there's a future for Hulu. I think that Time Warner buying 10% of it, you know, back to what we talked about in the beginning with Business Insider, I'd have to bet that that's, you know, the beginning of a process for Time Warner to buy it. But that's just a guess. I mean, literally just a random guess. But, you know, it would make sense to me. 
the the only problem would be the other three owners would have to agree to it, of and that's prevented any other deal. Yeah, from but happening. they've had they've had but they've had their chance. I mean, True. None of them have done anything with it. Truthfully, the fact they even let Time Warner in now tells you tells you something. That's true. And also, actually, only two of the three would have to say yes because Comcast stake in Hulu is passive. So therefore, that actually got a, got them into potentially a little bit of trouble when uh, they were trying to buy Time Warner Cable uh, because they're not supposed to have any influence on the future. Consortiums are tough. I mean, there's a great book for anybody who enjoys the you know following the media industry called um, The Last Mogul. It was about Lou Wasserman. And a lot of what I've learned came from my time at CA, obviously, and Lou Wasserman was the ultimate agent and, and had it all under one roof years ago. And this idea of leveraging relationships with content distribution, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the entertainment industry has always been about um, acquisitions and consolidation and then, and then a divestiture process and then you know, acquiring again. It's sort of a pendulum. And, and right now, I think you're going to see much more consolidation, bigger companies buying up different pieces and, and looking at that kind of consolidated package. And, and, you know, you'll have to look at Netflix and think about whether they'll ever get into the acquisition game. They certainly haven't yet um, from a brand perspective. But to grow, I think at some point they'll have no choice and it'll just be about whether or not they can do it effectively. I mean, look at these companies. You think about it, the amount of money that these companies have – at their disposal, um, you know, Amazon has $16 billion, I think, in cash. Google has $75 billion in cash. I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, Microsoft, whatever it is, you know, you, you know better than I. There's, a, there's just, you know, a lot of money out there. And these companies are learning how to do acquisitions. They're functioning like media companies in lots of ways, but they haven't completely nailed it. Um, Facebook tried to buy Snapchat, didn't work. Um, on the other hand, they did great with with Instagram. So, it's a it's a it's a maturation process for these new media companies, which I think ultimately leads to um, much more M and A. I think the world is still waiting for one of those big tech companies to really take the plunge yeah. into media and buy maybe one of the larger media companies. I mean, the one people speculate a lot is Time Warner. Time Warner. We finally, yeah. see Google or Apple or someone else acquire Time Warner and then try to sort of run the cable business uh, that is this legacy cable business and potentially transform it into something that's a little bit more modern. And maybe that works with something like Hulu, as you uh, I think it'll happen. I, mean, I, I think it's inevitable. It's just more a matter of when. I don't think – I think Microsoft is going to go back more to the enterprise side. So they may have just seen the landscape and said, we're just not going to win there, so we'll go win elsewhere, um, kind of go back to our roots. But everybody else, fair game. Mark Patrikoff, Managing Director at Houlihan Loki. Mark, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's episode. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time like Mark in future episodes. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week.